Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Matthew Oki O'Connor, CEO for Scientific Affairs of Cyclarity Therapeutics, a company that is targeting one of the great scourges of old age, the buildup of arterial plaque. I first met Oki when we were both postdocs at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. I was in Judy Campisi's lab working on cellular senescence, and he was just down the hill in Arena Convoy's lab studying the effect of aging on muscle stem cells. He went on to become VP of Research at SENS Research Foundation, where he oversaw research projects spanning many aspects of rejuvenation biotechnology. He co-founded Cyclarity, originally as Underdog Pharmaceuticals, in 2019. Oki, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So you're going after heart disease, so no concerns about market size then? No, yeah, the, the market is, uh, is enormous, so that's the least of our concerns. Correct me if I'm wrong, is it the number one or number two cause of death in the world? Number one, and in fact, if you risk adjust for underlying causes of death for atherosclerosis, which is the thickening of the arteries, depending on which meta-study you believe, between 30 and 50% of all death on the planet is caused by cardiovascular dysfunction, namely the, the buildup of plaque in the arteries. Wow. So you really are taking the course of deciding where you can make absolutely the greatest impact on human health. So you're taking aim at the root cause of much heart and vascular disease, atherosclerosis. So let's start with the basics. What is atherosclerosis and maybe what is an arterial plaque? Atherosclerosis is the thickening of the arteries, which means in the vessel wall, you have a buildup of material called plaque, which starts out as a fatty streak in the wall of a blood vessel which attracts macrophage monocytes to the, the site of the lesion, which will then invade the lesion, differentiate into macrophages, try to repair the lesion. And then if it's going to become a plaque, they will eat too much uh, junk that they can't digest and turn into what are called foam cells because of the way that they look. They look big and blobby and foamy, and then they become the problem rather than the solution. And you have this this sort of nasty feedback loop where you get more and more macrophages, more and more inflammation. That's all getting recruited to this side of the plaque. It grows and grows and gets more and more inflamed until you have either complete occlusion or the plaque ruptures and uh, you have a thrombotic event. As we get older, oxidized cholesterol, which fills these foam cells and the corpses of the foam cells themselves and other kinds of junk build up in these plaques. So is this just a function of time, or are there other things about the aging process that facilitate or exacerbate the buildup of these plaques? I don't try to differentiate between the aging process and the, and the evolution of the plaque. Certainly, you can start getting plaque at younger ages, but it happens to everyone with age, as you said, with the accumulation, with the absorption of LDL and ox-LDL into the artery wall. And that's a basic fact of, of metabolism. And then you have this oxidation of cholesterol and other lipids that are there that can happen either before the lipids get to the plaque 
or after. So this is a, a, a slow, non-enzymatic process that I think of as a, as a basic fact of aging. Okay, so you can think of it as just a pretty clear example of age-related damage. Time passes, events occur, these things accumulate, bad things happen. Exactly. And there's other aspects of aging that, uh, that may contribute to you know, the classic things that people think about. There was a, a nice paper a couple of years ago showing that there may be an impact of, of cell senescence uh, near, the, uh, near the plaque, uh, perhaps contributing to the, the overall inflammation from the SASP. That hasn't really been delved into deeply, but it's just another example of basic aspects of aging that are contributing to diseases of aging. And the SASP, the term that you use, that's the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. These are the noxious factors that are secreted by senescent cells that are thought to drive age-related change in a variety of tissues around the body. Is that correct? Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more specifically, or a little bit more detail, I should say, about how the plaques contribute to disease. The last part of the story that you told us is it triggers a thrombotic event. Can you kind of paint us a picture of what happens when that happens? That's when a, a plaque bursts and you have the, the debris from the plaque that then goes flowing down the vessel. And what, what can happen is that the big chunk of plaque will flow until it gets to a narrowing of the vessel and then it'll get stuck and it'll block blood flow. And that's when you can get a heart attack or a stroke from you know, lack of uh, blood flow. That's kind of the worst case scenario of atherosclerosis. But you know, just the restriction of, of blood flow from the growth of the, the slow growth of the plaque over time is also problematic, as is the inflammation, the systemic inflammation that can be created uh, from the plaque. I see. So it doesn't need to burst open in order to make you sick. Exactly. For example, you can get constriction of the arteries uh, leading from the heart and you have restricted blood flow to and from the, the heart. And that can cause chest pain called angina, which is not only painful, can also restrict your ability to do basic things like exercise, walk up and down stairs, things like that. So it, it's not just about that, you know, you could drop dead suddenly uh, in your sleep or when you're crossing the street, but it can just make your, your life uh, slowly uh, worse and worse as you age. I see. And that results in loss of autonomy, loss of quality of life, and it presumably contributes to other kinds of morbidities. Like if you have restricted circulation and limited blood flow to certain tissues, generally things are going to be getting worse. Peripheral artery disease, another example, like you just pointed out that you have restricted blood flow. If you have restricted blood flow to your feet, to your hands, you know, people end up losing limbs uh, because of this. As you said, it's uh, implicated in a lot of aspects of disease. Uh, another one is uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. Most people don't realize that most uh, COPD is actually attributed. Most people think of you know smoking or air pollution, but most of COPD is attributed to atherosclerosis, which can be exacerbated by smoking and, uh, and air pollution. One of the things that strikes me as you've talked about this is that like a lot of aging-related targets, atherosclerosis has ramifications for a large number of clinical indications. It's not just one thing, it's many things. And that's something, we, it's a theme that emerges again and again when we talk about people in the broadly defined longevity biotech community. The things they're going after aren't just going to be treatments for a specific kind of cancer with a particular mutation or, you know, a very specific kind of skin disease. It's going to be something that 
affect many organ systems, not just the site where the insult is occurring, but all throughout the body. I just wanted to highlight that for our listeners. It's a theme that we return to again and again on this show. It's absolutely an unavoidable paradigm shift as we pivot towards looking at the aspects of aging that cause the diseases of aging. There's no way to avoid the concept or the idea that a basic molecular mechanism, a biochemical mechanism of aging is going to impact you know, many, if not all, cells and tissue systems. It's just that up until now, we've been studying them one organ at a time in medicine rather than one cell or one kind of damage uh, uh, molecule at a time. Agreed. So I think from what you've told us so far, we'll all agree that it'd be great if we could get rid of arterial plaques and get and, and treat atherosclerosis successfully. So what's the current state of the art clinically? Clinically, it's it's frustrating and it's extremely limited. Mostly we have uh, lipid-lowering medications, which have gotten better and better in terms of their ability to reduce LDL cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein, the so-called bad cholesterol. And that's had an impact on slowing down the accumulation of plaque, the progression of plaque. But then again, the so-called bad cholesterol actually has a job. It's not to be bad. <laughs> uh, its biological function <laughs> is to redistribute cholesterol through the body. So HDL takes cholesterol from tissues and delivers it to the liver, and then the liver recycles cholesterol because cholesterol is relatively expensive to make. And so it prefers to recycle it, and so then it repackages it into LDL and sends it back into circulation so that your cells and tissues can reuse that cholesterol, which it needs. So, you know, there's a balancing act there. And the standard of care is to just try to drive that LDL recycling uh, down as far as possible and drive overall cholesterol levels down as far as possible. But there's, there's only so much remediation you can do with that to prevent the problem from getting worse faster. And it's pretty limited. And we really need a, a paradigm shift to, to look at new, new approaches to addressing uh, cardiovascular disease. Other aspects, of course, are surgery. Uh, so if you can cut out, you can do a bypass. If you can cut out the section of vessel that's occluded before it, it bursts, then that's another way to do it. That's, of course, very extreme. Uh, I think most people would rather avoid that if, uh, if possible. And then you can, uh, you can take uh, blood pressure-lowering medications and blood thinners to try to uh, reduce the chances of uh, of a plaque uh, bursting or vessel breaking or leaking. Uh, but th that all seems really primitive to me compared to where we should be looking in terms of repairing vessels throughout the body and in the brain. So the picture you're painting is one in which we're treating events that are either pretty far upstream or pretty far downstream of the actual insult that causes the disease. In the case of the medication solution, you're lowering the level of LDL in the circulation, and the, the, the strategy is to slow the accumulation of damage by getting rid of stuff that's actually, most of it is totally harmless and in fact has a beneficial function in the body. And then in terms of downstream stuff, yeah, by the time that you're doing vascular surgery on somebody, you've kind of lost the game. You know, you've, you've clearly missed an opportunity to prevent a bad thing from happening in the first place. And, and going back to the upstream solutions, the, the lipid lowering medications, once the damage is done and you already have atherosclerosis and you have a plaque, 
Do those therapies do anything to reverse it? The short answer is no. Uh, There are one or two studies where they've dosed patients with extraordinarily high doses of lipid-lowering drugs like statins and managed to see very, very small reductions in the total plaque volume in some patients. The the data is pretty noisy, and it required thousands of, of patients with some pretty careful measurements to be able to see a, a tiny percentage change, it, not clear by what mechanism. So short answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is that if you really radically change the you know, sort of mass balance of cholesterol in the system, that uh, in some cases it may be able to reduce slightly, but it's quite incremental. Uh, however, what has been shown is that in, in cases like that or extreme lifestyle changes where plaque may shrink a little bit, you've actually seen extremely big changes in cardiovascular events. So uh, a 1% reduction in plaque volume has been associated with a 20% reduction in the probability of having a heart attack. So if you can improve on that, which we're hoping to do radically, then we should be reducing uh, heart attacks and strokes and other side effects of atherosclerosis by a, a tremendous amount. Okay, so it's fair to say that, you know, to first order, there's no truly disease-modifying therapy currently on the market. So enter Cyclarity. What's your strategy for targeting these plaques? Looking into the literature, we became convinced that the most atherogenic molecules that were there were the oxidized cholesterols that are accumulating in the plaque. and they are also the most prone to poisoning macrophages and forcing the transition from uh, macrophage to foam cell. And we've been able to uh, repeat all of that and use that as a model and as a research tool in our lab. And we see that when we you know, give macrophages oxidized cholesterol in various forms, that they just balloon up into, into foam cells quickly and, and you know, honestly, grotesquely. And so we wanted to find a drug that we thought we could get into clinic relatively easily and quickly and uh, scoured the the literature for types of materials that could be used in biological systems that we could engineer to be something that could specifically bind oxidized cholesterol, the most poisonous form of cholesterol that you have absolutely no use for, and target that preferably over cholesterol. And so we built our first drug to do exactly that. And what class of molecules are you using for drug development? We've invented a new kind of cyclodextrin. A cyclodextrin is a cyclic carbohydrate. They're made by by some microbes, uh, by some bacteria enzymatically, and they've been used for, I think, going on 100 years in industry for various interesting applications. In the past three decades, they've taken on a new role in medicine as delivery tools for drugs. So you can package hydrophobic drugs, small hydrophobic drugs that you want to deliver into, say, the bloodstream, and then you can use these cyclodextrins to safely deliver drugs. So that's been their history for the last 30 years. And uh, what we did was was went and, and studied 
how they did that, how they function, how you can make a cyclodextrin have a preference for one kind of molecule over another, and also what can make them so safe. And we tried to take, to learn from that, take the different aspects of what's known about cyclodextrins, use that as a starting point to start engineering new ones. And that's what we've done and, and how we've invented our, our lead drug. These are neat compounds, and I want to talk about them a little bit more and maybe test my own understanding a little bit. So these are these are ring-shaped polymers made up of monosaccharide simple sugar building blocks. So if we think about what carbohydrates look like, it means we have a lot of hydroxyl groups, OH groups, sticking off the ring, and, and that's largely why they're so soluble, right? Because hydroxyl groups like water. The core building block of we're going to get into the weeds here uh, pretty quickly, Chris. The core building block of beta-cyclodextrin, which is the medium-sized flavor of cyclodextrins, which is uh, what we use, are not very soluble without changing them a little bit by adding uh, what are called substitution groups onto the hydroxyl to replace the hydroxyl groups with different kinds of substitutions that can increase their solubility. So they're a little bit soluble on their own, but you can actually drive that solubility through the roof by changing it to something else. And the, the two most common substitutions are hydroxypropyl groups and sulfobutyl ether groups. And uh, th those can actually increase the solubility of a cyclodextrin up to something like uh, you can get a 60% uh, weight volume solution of a cyclodextrin with some of these hypersoluble uh, versions that can be made. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad I asked. I, I, I didn't clearly understand what was going on with the chemistry and the solubility, so I, I really appreciate you running that through. So it does seem like because you have all these hydroxyls, you have a lot of slots available for modification. And is modifying those groups, is that the modification that you're doing to change the specificity of binding, the kind of molecules that these cyclodextrins like to pick up? The real core breakthrough that we made has been to dimerize the cyclodextrins, which allows them to form a very strong cage around the, the target, uh, in this case, the oxidized cholesterol. And then on top of that, as you say, we've engineered the shape of the molecule through the, the substitutions to form the, the right shape to generate the specificity for the target. In the case of our first drug, the uh, most commonly oxidized form of cholesterol. Okay. So what you have produced then is a dimeric, that is to say a two-part cyclodextrin molecule that binds seven keto cholesterol or some other kind of oxidized cholesterol in this kind of pocket or chamber within the molecule. And in order to work and bring oxidized cholesterol out of foam cells, it must be able to cross the cell membrane. That's a controversial topic inside of the cyclodextrin field. I, I believe so. It's difficult to prove. At the very least, it can suck the cholesterol, in this case, the oxidized cholesterol, out of the plasma membrane at the surface if it's not getting into the cell. I believe that, that some cyclodextrins must be getting into cells and into lysosomes from you know various studies that in cases of lysosomal dysfunction that have been so radically shown to be able to rescue lysosomal dysfunction. So it, it seems unlikely to me 
that it could be doing that action at a distance, but it's a little difficult to prove, you know, due to the intricacies of needing to do subcellular fractionation and then uh, really careful measurement and quantification of your your cyclodextrins uh, by methods that are somewhat sensitive and uh, and expensive. So, kind of a long answer to your simple question. We think. The answer is yes. Somehow they're getting in, they're grabbing the oxidized cholesterol, and then they're getting back uh, out with it very quickly. And they're not grabbing regular cholesterol because regular cholesterol is, despite its bad rap, actually good for your cells most of the time. And you don't want your drug to be pulling useful, normal cholesterol out of the membrane. That's right. As opposed to the the normal paradigm of, of targeting cholesterol, we actually did the opposite, which was we trained our drug against normal cholesterol. So it has a strong preference for oxidized cholesterol over over normal cholesterol. And we can do the opposite, where we can build a cyclodextrin that has a very high affinity for normal cholesterol, and we can just tear ourselves apart with it. If you pull too much cholesterol out of a cell, out of the cell membrane, it just falls apart. We can see that clearly in our, in our experiments. And it also correlates to toxicity in all cell types that we tested against and and in, in blood and in mammalian systems. So it's a, it's a very clear correlation between, you know, having a preference against uh, cholesterol and, uh, and, and safety for the use of the drug. And this is a really important biological insight and point, which is that I think, as I said, cholesterol has a bad rap and people think of it, I think the average non-specialist just thinks of cholesterol as this like, weird molecule that's in your body for some reason, but is totally bad. And in the foam cell story, the arterial plaque story, it's actually the cholesterol itself isn't bad. It's this thing that happens to the cholesterol once in a while, gets oxidized, right? That then does something bad to a cell type that's trying to, you know, generally do a beneficial function. And so your drug, other drugs, the the lipid-lowering drugs you talked about before, they're just really targeting all cholesterol and cholesterol trafficking within the body. And you're saying, no, let's focus on the bad metabolite of cholesterol, the specific thing that's driving disease. Let's pull that out of the cell and leave the cholesterol alone to do the stuff it's supposed to do. Am I getting that right? The only thing I want to point out is sometimes people get excited when they hear me talk about this stuff and they say, okay, I'm going to go off of my uh, medication that my doctor put me on. And I want to say, don't do that. Those lipid-lowering drugs do actually save lives and keep atherosclerosis from getting worse faster. But we are trying to invent a better way to do it, a more elegant uh, way to get rid of the only the most toxic forms of cholesterol so that your arteries can repair themselves the way that they're engineered to. That's a really good point. Thank you for that clarification. And one can imagine a future in which there's a combination therapy, right? You're handling the, the problem at multiple levels. You're slowing the buildup of plaques by lowering cholesterol overall. And then when the truly bad cholesterol, oxidized cholesterol builds up and creates stem cells, you get rid of that at the site of insult. So there's they're not mutually exclusive at all. Exactly. Uh, And I imagine uh, that our treatment, at least at first, will be paired with the standard of care, which mostly is currently lipid-lowering treatments, at least at first. You know, can technologies like ours eventually replace it? And will we not need lipid-lowering medications in the future? You know, hard to say, maybe. But uh, yeah, exactly. I think that paradigm is, is what we'll see happening next as next generation 
drugs like ours, and, and hopefully we're not the the, the only ones uh, shouting into the into the void on this. And we'll have we'll see more competition coming along with with other groups uh, taking novel approaches to solving difficult problems like this. But uh, I, I think uh, at least for a while we'll see the the pairing of trying to bring the system into some kind of homeostasis by by lowering the cholesterol down to what's considered a, a healthy level and then reversing the, the damage that's built up, uh, in this case, the plaque. A very general question that you can take in any direction you want. How's it going? And let me clarify a little bit. Like, where are you in terms of the experiments that you're doing? Are you doing experiments with protein in vitro? Are you working in cell culture? Are you in animals yet? Uh, we're in all of those steps, and in fact, we're we're almost done with the what's called IND or IMPD enabling work, which is the uh, IND stands for Investigational New Drug, which is the permission that you need from the FDA to enter human clinical trials. And with our first drug, we are almost done with uh, all of those experiments and getting ready to submit our first application to enter human clinical trials. And uh, we, we hope to be finishing that up in actually only in the next few months and submitting our application later this year, uh, sometime around mid-year or early uh, Q3 of, uh, of this year, 2023. Oh, that's very exciting. You'll have to, I mean, I'm sure I follow you on all those social media and I'll, I'll get the news, but be sure to let me know when that happens because I want to pass on to our, our listeners the news of your IND. And, and just to clarify, like when you, when you do the IND filing, that is the molecule that you're going to take to trial, correct? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's very precisely defined. We've already met with the FDA regulators in a pre IND meeting and given them a tremendous amount of information about our drug, the characterization of the drug, the, the manufacturing of the drug, and told them what safety testing we're doing and getting feedback from them about what they want to see. Uh, we've also done that in the United Kingdom, where we also have an application uh, active and where we will probably uh, start our application process and our, our clinical trial process. So that's at a, at a very advanced stage, and they're very, very picky about exactly what drug you're using, uh, the nature of it, the fact that it doesn't change throughout the course of your many different experiments that you're submitting to show that it's safe and that the manufacturing is uh, is reliable and consistent and that it's not getting contaminated with uh, anything, any any of a large number of possible things that could be toxic to humans. That, that's most of our job right now is uh, is making the drug very consistently and uh, and cleanly in preparation to, to go into people. Great. And at the, at the sort of pharmacological level, it means you have a molecule that is, you know, non-toxic in cell culture and animals, that it binds oxidized cholesterol. It doesn't bind regular cholesterol. It's behaving exactly the way that you want it to. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they want to see that, it, uh, you know, that how it's being cleared from the body, that it's being cleared. I have a question about that. Like, what happens to the complex of cyclodextrin and oxidized cholesterol after it leaves the foam cell? We think it's pretty simple, uh, but uh, we're still gathering data to try to prove that more clearly. But we think what's happening is actually that the cyclodextrin forms this tight complex around the oxidized cholesterol, and then it just floats away and is excreted through the kidney into your urine or into the feces 
uh, through the liver and that it, it doesn't get uh, metabolized at all, that it just gets uh, excreted whole. We're getting data on that in the, in the urine now, which is the easy part, playing around with, uh, with animal poop and extracting the different parts of it that you want to see uh, clearly is, uh, is a little more time consuming, but uh, we're, we're working through that now. But that's, that's our working hypothesis. Let me see. This is super digressive, but how does something get from the liver into the feces? Oh, with, through the bile. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yep. Remembering my anatomy. Okay. Well, thank you for running through that with me. Hopefully we haven't alienated a hundred percent of our non-specialist listeners with some of the in the weeds digressions in this episode. But honestly, one of the things I love about this job is I get to ask any question that I'm curious about. And today, apparently I'm curious about chemistry and liver function. So back to the main line of the conversation. Above, we talked about the fact that true aging targets, one of the ways you know you're working on something that's an aging target, a longevity target, is that it will have ramifications on multiple different disease states and could be used for multiple indications. But you're a young company, (laughs) you're going to do one trial at a time. So what kinds of indications are you considering for your very first clinical trial of this molecule? Well, our first uh, clinical trial is going to be in healthy volunteers, some of whom are going to be middle-aged volunteers who presumably will have built up some plaque that has not yet reached the level of being considered pathological uh, so that they haven't been diagnosed with, say, coronary artery disease yet, but will hopefully get a little bit of data off of them in phase one. In phase two, we're going to target patients with coronary artery disease that have a lot of arterial plaque, specifically in the coronary artery. And then in phase three, uh, depending on the, the state of play with the regulators, the current regulations say that you must measure enough patients to be able to count heart attacks or other cardiovascular events like strokes in order to prove that your drug is working. We can, if you want to get into the, the, the weeds and the, and the regulations of that, we can, but that's the, the current regulations, which is uh, somewhat onerous. So at that point, if that's still the, the case, we may pick a sub-indication like angina that I mentioned before, the chest pain, or peripheral artery disease, and show improvements in circulation to the limbs that can keep people walking and and hopefully not uh, not losing any hands or feet from complications of atherosclerosis. The, the, the nice thing about our strategy, about our clinical trial strategy, is that we think we can remain agnostic about exactly which final indication to go into until we get back the data in phase two that shows reduction in plaque. We'll be able to attract, uh, I think, a lot of investment at that point. And if you know a giant drug company wants to fund a you know, a 10,000 person clinical trial to count uh, heart attacks or strokes, then they can pay for that. Otherwise, we can go for a smaller indication that's also caused by the same thing and show that first and then expand from there into all of the indications that are uh, downstream of atherosclerosis. And one of those strategies is another theme that comes up again and again on this show, which is the idea of approval for a relatively narrow indication, whether out of financial considerations or because of an interpretation of the regulatory landscape or just practical considerations, followed by label expansion after the initial approval. So it sounds like you have a couple of different paths to market. 
and it depends on how things go in the early stage trials. One of the things you mentioned that I think some of our listeners might be interested to know is that the indication that you're looking at at phase two doesn't have to be identical to the indication in phase three. It's something that we're being careful about and getting good advice on, but we believe that we'll be able to proceed with that kind of approach and not get locked into a single indication too early. We think that that data can just be, like I said before, agnostic, that we can just measure plaque someplace and uh, assume that we'll get benefits elsewhere that there is plaque and that the, the regulators will be happy with our with our safety data and with our efficacy up to that point uh, enough to uh, let us go after any of those sub-indications of atherosclerosis that, uh, that we're interested in. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask a philosophical question. So let me start with the observation that you and I end up at the same parties a lot. And by that, I mean that we're both members of what, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call the longevity science or aging science community here in the Bay Area. And your academic training was very much aging focus. And I know that you've just had a lifelong interest in the biology of aging and and its practical application to improve human health. So we talked a little bit before about, you know, is atherosclerosis aging? Is it because of aging? So do you think of Cyclarity as a longevity biotech company? Absolutely. We were a spin out uh, of an aging research foundation. We're incubating now at the Buck Institute on Aging. And the target that we're going after, the oxidized cholesterol, is one toxic biomolecule that accumulates with age in many cells and tissues. And we are looking at other toxic biomolecules that accumulate with age to use our technology to remediate those as well. I'll give you another example. Our lead drug, I also got a grant from the National Institute on Aging to test our drug against Alzheimer's disease. Because as we were saying before, the same kind of molecular mechanisms that drive disease in one cellular tissue may uh, drive it in another. And uh, we connected enough dots to convince the reviewers in the Institute that there, there may be a, an important role for oxidized cholesterol in dementia, uh, specifically in Alzheimer's disease. So we're looking at, uh, at that now as well. So it's uh, absolutely, I, I believe, a basic mechanism of aging that we're targeting both with our lead drug and with uh, hopefully many more drugs to come. Indeed, hopefully. An Alzheimer's trial is definitely one of those courses of action that require a a pretty big partner with pretty deep pockets. Those trials tend to be gigantic. Yeah, and I don't want to lead people on to to thinking that we're very far along down that path or that that that's even going to be the first several indications we're looking at. I would say that one of our and call them competitors not in the aging space, using a more generic form of cyclodextrin that's been around for a long time, is doing an open-label clinical trial against Alzheimer's disease using a cyclodextrin-based drug. It's not to be on the pale. I feel like they may be putting the cart before the horse a little bit, and they may have a hard time showing efficacy and, and that their pockets are not deep enough to actually do that. But it's certainly conceivable, and uh, I think maybe a little further in the future than we might like, but definitely uh, a possibility. It's exciting, and again, it kind of you know touches on that theme of true aging targets having 
ramifications for a large number of different clinical indications. And here we're talking about, you know, completely different organ systems, like outside of the vasculature and into the brain. I feel like we've covered a lot of the bases, and I just want to leave you with just giving you the floor for a second. We know that the IND is coming up. What else do you have your eye on this year? Getting the, the permission and then starting the clinical trial and then, you know, continuing to expand on our pipeline. We've got this really exciting computational chemistry platform that we used to invent our first drug that is, is really uh, matured quite a bit since then into something that's really sophisticated. And we'll be publishing something on that this year as well. And that tool is, uh, is allowing us to iterate and, uh, and invent new drug candidates in the computer in, uh, in silico, as they say, before we even uh, start synthesizing new prototypes. So I'm excited as we, on one side of the development process, are, are going into people and into clinic, but also at the opposite and at the very beginning, inventing many new drugs. So those are the whole spectrum of things that we'll be hopefully delivering on uh, the rest of this year. Well, we're certainly wishing you the best with all of those endeavors. Dr. Matthew O'Connor of Cyclarity Therapeutics, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at biohlabs.com, on Twitter at biohpodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioH Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.